This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. When the jury panel comes into the courtroom and the bailiff says, all rise, I know we're here. And it doesn't matter who they are, nobody should be above the law. A lot of us talk about that, but you actually done it. That's how you also maintain quality control over your practice. Yeah. That's a question I get asked a lot, and here's the answer. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation. Your source to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your law firm. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Trial Lawyer Nation. Uh, This is Michael Cowan. I'm here today with my partner, Sonia Rodriguez, for one of our table talks. And we are going to answer questions that you guys have been kind enough to send in. Uh, Thank you for sending these in. We really do read them, and we're going to do our best to answer as many as we can. How are you doing today, Sonia? I'm great, Michael. I'm doing really well and really excited to um, answer some of these questions. I'm impressed by the uh, breadth and diversity of the questions that have come in from across the country. It's exciting to see that folks are interested in listening to Trial Lawyer Nation. Happy to answer some questions for folks. Okay, well, let's start here. Uh, This is from a Texas listener. What advice would you give to a lawyer who was in their first two years of practicing law? One of the biggest things that I think um, is critical to a successful personal injury law practice is understanding the difference between a PI practice and a typical business practice when you're talking to bankers and lenders. And so, of course, I learned this the hard way. Uh, I've been practicing now almost 20 years, but the very first conversations you have with a banker about lines of credit and and assets to the firm, um, it's really like talking a foreign language to certain bankers. So what you need to do is find a bank who knows exactly the PI practice and knows that lots of times the assets um, that you have are going to be intangible. They're in your file cabinet, or as we have now, (laughs) they're on our our, uh, server. Are your case expenses. That's uh, I used to used to have a bank that would lend me against my case expenses. That's gotten a lot harder to do since 08, though. Right. Uh, they, Banking regulations and, and things like that. Yeah, they make me put up investment accounts now. <laughs> Which leads me to another piece of advice, um, is that if you want to have a successful practice early on in your uh, law practice, one year, two years, three to seven years out, you want to start saving your money. And I used to call it hoarding money. Um, but you hoard your money early on in your practice so that you can borrow against your um, investments and your money when you want to be able to fund a big case. And you absolutely have to have that ability. And, and you know, the first time you hit a decent case or get a decent fee, don't start living like you're going to hit that every year or every month. You need to live below your means for a long time. There is a, to build up the kind of war chest you have to have to do a big personal injury case, you really have to be financially disciplined and defer the gratification. You know, don't go buy that brand new Mercedes. Don't go buy the huge expensive house. I mean, my first house I bought uh, when I went to plaintiff's practice, uh, I bought for $67,000. That was Brownsville, Texas. You can buy a house a lot cheaper there. Uh, and lived there until uh, after I was married. When I first got married, we lived in that house. And, uh, you know, I remember my wife would be talking about there'd be friends of ours and they would they make less money than you and they have this big house and we're still living and I said yes but they have a house note and I don't and you know they're barely making it every month they're not able to pay off their credit card bills and I'm growing a business and you know in time this thing's going to pay off and and the reality of a personal injury business is that banks will only lend you money if you have money and you don't need it and you don't need it and so you know hoarding your money early on as a baby lawyer um, is certainly a lot easier to do was easier to do for me if you grow up poor you don't know what it's like to live large um, so but that's super important um, is, is making it a long game yeah there's some lessons I've learned one thing is you know where are you gonna get your competitive advantage you know you're you're a young lawyer you're wanting to be you know 10 20 years from now handling the big cases you know making the big money uh, and, and being able to pick and choose what you do. 
I think one competitive advantage is getting trial experience. Not a lot of people uh, get trial experience these days. Now, a lot of people say go work at a district attorney's office. I hope I don't offend anyone. And if I do, I'm going to tell what I think anyway, whether it offends you or not. I do not think that is good practice uh, to become a personal injury lawyer. I know people disagree with me on that, but being a prosecutor, you have a huge volume of files. You don't have to do discovery. You have law enforcement do a lot of the work up for you. You have a jury that's on your side in most jurisdictions when you walk in the room. And I've known a lot of people that think they're great trial lawyers because they've won a lot of cases as an assistant U.S. attorney or as a uh, district attorney somewhere. And, you know, when it comes to having to work up a plaintiff's case and try a case where the jury thinks your client's fraud when you walk in the door and that you're probably a scummy PI lawyer when you walk in the door, <laughs> it's a different skill set. And the, you know, the amount of time that you have to spend prepping and how much further in advance and all the things you have to do yourself because you don't have a law enforcement agency doing your investigation is so different. So what I would recommend, honestly, doing it again, you know, unless you can get hired by one of the top PI firms and get taken under the wing of one of the top PI lawyers, if you can do that, great. I mean, you know, Mark Lanier, Michael Watts, one of those kind of people wants to hire you to be their, their shadow, take it. Uh, if not, I would either get a job for like a Jim Adler, for like a, somebody with a huge car wreck docket uh, and say, I want to try these cases. Because even within those firms, you know, a lot of the older lawyers are going to be on a on a incentive-based system. Uh, and even if they go in there and spend, you know, two, three days and get a verdict on a car wreck case, unless it's a really big verdict, they probably would have made more money in the office. And you go there and say, I will try these cases. I don't care. Uh, if you can get a job like that, I think you can get a lot of trial experience. Uh, and educate yourself. Go to every, kind of every seminar, read every book, listen to these podcasts, and you know try to learn from it, and not just try the same case over and over again and phone it in. If you can't get that kind of a job, because there's only so many positions, uh, I would put the word out there. I would network with the lawyers, take them lunch, go find lawyers that have car wreck cases, and say, I want to try cases. I will try the cases you don't want to try. Uh, and what's going to happen is you're going to go in there. Uh, they're not going to cost a lot of money to try, luckily. But you're going to get your butt kicked a few times, but you're going to hit a few, and you're going to get better. And when you win those kind of cases, that's how I came up, you get a good verdict on a low-impact chiropractor-only case. It's a lot easier to give someone, give you the chance to, okay, well, here's one with a little more damage. Well, here's one where it's a workplace injury and there's a contractor involved, third-party contractor involved. Well, here's one with a truck involved. And you can start working up the ranks because you're going to have that trial experience. And you're going to get, if you try enough cases, you're going to win some. Uh, that other people don't have. I think those are all really good um, pieces of advice for lawyers who are in their first two years of practicing law. One other lesson that I think is critical to young lawyers is to uh, not forget that uh, relationships can change over the life of your practice and uh, decisions to become partners or, or you know, long-term investment deals with other lawyers you know need to be taken as seriously as you take you know a marriage and so I think that um, you know some of the mistakes that can be made in these in these kinds of legal professions are you know not putting things in writing not having an exit strategy not having key man insurance policy not having you know backup plans for when things go wrong and so that's critical advice that I would give to anybody in their first two years of practicing law is don't forget that they may be, you know, your law partner may be your best friend and, uh, you know, longtime uh, buddy, but you can never predict what will happen in five, ten years. You definitely can't. And, uh, you know, two people that are best friends and sharing everything where you're not making any money, money changes things. One of you may become more successful than the other. There's all kinds of issues. One, and this is going to segue, the next question we have is, you know, what are things that you know now that you wish you had known earlier in your career? And one is, I wish that I had spent the, turns out, fairly small amount of money to hire a lawyer to draft my agreements with other <laughs> lawyers way earlier in my career. Because, you know, we're lawyers, we think we can do it ourselves. I sue people. I don't draft things. Uh, I end up, without the advice, agreeing to things that I didn't have to agree to that were not necessarily in my favor because you're all trying to be nice to each other. Uh, and then you end up with a hole in your agreement you didn't realize was there because you're not 
you're not in the business of thinking about everything goes wrong. You're thinking of, hey, we're all good people, we're friends, this is all going to work, and you're not you're not drafting for those contingencies. Right. And so I, you know, once I finally spent the money to hire a lawyer, what I've spent on legal fees for having things drafted for me now is less than one percent of what I paid people that I wouldn't have had to pay had I had good agreements. Less less than one percent. I mean. Uh, a, a good transactional lawyer, they're not that expensive. Right. Um, so, what's some other things? I, I think this is a good discussion we're going to have for a while. What's something else that you wish you knew earlier in your career? One of the, uh, it's important, I think, for personal injury trial lawyers on both sides of the docket to appreciate the levels of stress that we face every day. I don't think the human body is made to endure the types of uh, mental stress and physical stress that can come with a litigation, a heavy litigation practice. Uh, sometimes we go depots without eating lunch. Sometimes we take super early flights. Sometimes we stay up super late working and preparing for the next day. And on the PI on the plaintiff side, it's very easy to get emotionally invested in your client's catastrophic injuries. And so it's over the course of the last 20 years, you can see it taking a, uh, a toll on you. And so what I wish I had learned sooner was that as a trial lawyer, you have to find a mechanism for outlet. You have to exercise. You have to meditate. Meditate does, Meditation doesn't work for me, but I know it, it does for a lot of people. It works for me. But, you know, finding uh, an outlet for exercise for some people journal, some people, you, you need some kind of an outlet um, to um, maintain your, your mental health. It's amazing how many high level, I'm not gonna, Rick Friedman talks about it, he's one of the great trial lawyers in the country, about how you, if you're gonna do this work, you have to have a good therapist. Because, uh, you know, it's in, there's a, still a little bit of a stigma about talking about this, but I could not, and I did not for many years, handle this kind of work well and internalize all the trauma we take from people, and I, I would turn it into, mostly for me, eating. Uh, and then, you know, without having some outlet and someone to talk to, and I, and I think that, you know, you have to learn to feel your client's pain and care in, in order to do this well, but it can it can overwhelm you and then all the other stresses. So I think that if, if you want to do this at a high level, then, you know, get over it and talk to somebody and, and, and get someone good. Uh, there's no shame in it that we lose. I've, I've already lost friends to suicide. I've seen careers ruined with alcohol. I've seen people make mistakes and go to jail. Uh, it's not, you're worth, you're worth it. Take care of yourself. It is a very, very high level stress practice. And, um, you know, I think anybody who's looking at a career in the personal injury uh, litigation and trial practice needs to plan for some type of um, mental health uh, uh, contingency. You know, uh, there's this great article in the Harvard Business Review about uh, the stress and anxiety that comes with being a perfectionist. A lot of really high-level trial lawyers are perfectionists. And so when you're looking at strategies for dealing with those types of anxieties about, you know, not being absolutely perfect, um, some of it means, like I talked about, finding some outlet exercise and, and meditation and things like that. And some of it means reframing how you look at the world. And um, most of the time, we're not going to be able to do that on our own. Yep. Well, I do all of the above. Uh <laughs> uh, as far as self-care, I mean, I'm not exercising again, luckily. Uh, I meditate. I talk to somebody. I do it. But I will say, is this a stressful job? Yes. Do I absolutely love it? And I'm glad every day that I do it. And I wouldn't want to do anything else. Yep. I it agree. is also a fun job. It's also a satisfying job. To me, it's almost like a side benefit that you could also make a lot of money in, in this job. And, and the money's fun. Uh, to me, it's more like keeping score uh, or getting an A because the fact is I know some people that made millions and millions of dollars and they're miserable. Uh, once you make a certain amount of money, and it depends on what part of the country, obviously in New York City you need a lot more than you know rural, rural Texas, uh, but once you make, and for me it was about $80,000 a year, enough to make your mortgage payment without fail, 
to be able to go on vacation wherever you want within reason and be able to go out to eat and go to the movies wherever you want. Your life doesn't change much more between making eighty or hundred thousand a year and making one million, two million a year. Uh, your vacation's a little nicer, you know. Your car's a little fancier, but it, as far as your experiences, your happiness, there's not a huge amount of change. Uh, to me, the the thrill of winning, the artistry of doing it better, uh, has a lot more. So when I settle a big case, it's not just the money; it's the fact that. It's like getting an A. It's like winning a prize. Well, the strategy involved in, in crafting a great deposition and, and yeah. uh, you know, getting the testimony that you want out of a witness, you can't, there's no amount of money that's going to reward you for that. Well, you seem, I get more excited about that than I do when we settle seven bigger cases. That's true. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Which is probably a little twisted in my head, but, you know, I just, I love what we do. And when it goes right, it feels so good. Yeah. Uh, one thing I want to say that I wish... I had known, and it's something you have helped me with so much, Sonia, is saying no. Uh, for so long, I was scared to say no to cases. I was scared to say no to a referral deal that didn't make sense. I was scared to say no when someone wanted to come into work and wanted a deal that I I would know it wasn't working out, but I'd be scared to say no to them. Uh, and there's this fear that, you know, if I say no to the, if someone wants to refer me a case, I say no to that, then I'll never get another case again. And so, you know, I was operating out of fear, and then I would do all this work on cases that weren't right for me and end up not making very much money and wasting all this time and energy and creating all this stress. So how does it feel now that you've started saying no? Well, it was scary. It, it was very scary. I mean, I, I remember one of the things I did in therapy this year, there was a burn case that was not the right case for us. You know, huge damages, but the liability facts and the area law were not right for us. And my deal with my therapist, I was going to say no to that case. And, you know, before I would not have been able to do it, and I did. And it was so, the same people I've said no to saying, look, I don't do this, but I do that. Now they're bringing me that. That, that. I'm not lost any business, but I'm happier. I'm doing what I know how to do. I'm, frankly, making more money, feeling more satisfied. So, you know, I really wish I would have learned years ago that I can say no to this nicely. Like, I really appreciate you thanking me on this case, but it's not the right case for me. And there's another lawyer out there that it's the right case for them. And they're going to, because what happens, you take those cases, they go on the back burner. Those are the ones that you're going to mess up on. Those are the ones that you're going to get the angry clients because you haven't worked on their case and you just don't want to deal with it because you regret having taken it. But people accept and they actually respect you more when you say no. I agree. Trial Lawyer Nation is proud to partner with Trial Guides, leader in continuing education for civil plaintiff and criminal defense trial lawyers, with books, DVDs, CLEs, live webinars, and more. Visit trialguides.com and use code TLN19 at checkout to receive our exclusive podcast discount on any Trial Guides products. That's TLN for Trial Lawyer Nation and the number 19. Discount expires August 31st, 2019. And now, back to the show. Anything else you wish you knew earlier? I still feel like Jon Snow not knowing knowing nothing. <laughs> well, I think it's, you know, it's kind of affirmation, but, you know, I practiced in San Antonio my entire uh, career, and it wasn't until we partnered up that I started expanding my practice uh, throughout the country and, and through uh, throughout various pa- places in Texas. But um, one thing that is very affirming to me is uh, the gravity that your reputation has and the you know the importance of making sure that that you uh, are upfront and honest with the courts because especially in courtrooms where you're going to see the same judges over again and that you can um, keep your word with opposing counsel, especially if you're going to see those opposing lawyers over and over again. Um, You know, I think that is important, and, you know, I think that professionalism is important, and that's always been um, something that I take very seriously. And 
you see it even now. I mean, it, I took it for granted because I practice in San Antonio, which is a pretty tight knit community. And once you, you know, I had my name in, in San Antonio and Bear County and knew the judges and knew all the lawyers here. Uh, you kind of take for granted the reputation that you've built. But when you start expanding your practice to other parts of the state, I felt like telling people, like, don't you know who I am? <laughs> you know, you know, I don't, I don't argue with people over the phone about what my case, you know, what my weaknesses are in my case. You know, that's not what I'm going to do. I'm not going to waste my breath arguing with you about why a liability fact is in your favor or not. It's, we can agree to disagree and be zealous advocates for our clients, but I'm not going to argue with you. Um, so, you know, maintaining a professional reputation, I think, is critical, um, especially something that uh, two years of practice lawyer needs to remember. Yeah, and it is a statewide thing, at least in Texas, because the judges go to judges' school and they go to judges' conferences and they, you know, what, there's a judge that used to be uh, an associate of my firm, he's become a judge, and we're still good friends, and he went to judges' school with some judges here and, you know, they will call, call each other and say, hey, this guy's going to try a case in my court, what, is, what do I need to know about this person? And if you're have a, repu a bad reputation, they will talk to each other about you. They, they won't necessarily talk about the case, but say, hey, you know, that person misrepresented what the law was to me, or he lied about the facts, or that person's always late, or misses hearings, and you get a little bit less of the benefit of the doubt, or more, based on reputation. And it, it does it does make a difference, and it's funny, you get to a point, like you're like super deferential to judges, and you are still respectful of them, but you do get to a point in your career where they start being a little deferential to you. It's, it's kind of cool. Um, one last thing, and actually I learned this fairly early in my practice, but I think it's something that holds a lot of people back. If you're a personal injury lawyer, you should get trial experience, but no one remembers the cases you lose. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't believe, and people are so scared of losing, and it sucks to lose, but you do not suffer a reputational hit for losing a trial. You know, I have lost more cases than most people have tried, and I still have tons of referrals coming in because they just remember the ones I won. Uh, and usually when you lose a case, they're like, well, it's a tough case. Of course you lost that case. That's why they made you try it. There's no, you know, there's, you don't want to lose for your client's sake. You don't want to lose for your own ego's sake, but your career will not be harmed by losing a trial. So don't, you know, I spoke at an eighth grade career day, and I gave probably an inappropriate response. Uh, <laughs> they asked, what do you do when you lose a case? And I said, can I tell you the truth? I'm not going to get in trouble. And they said, yes. I said, I go home. I open uh, an expensive bottle of red wine, and I drink one or more glasses, and then I never think about the case again. I'm impressed that you just only have one or, <laughs> or more. <laughs> well, this is an eighth grade. The bottle yeah. is usually empty by the end of the night. I try to get my wife <laughs> to at least only have one bottle. One glass. You know, because it's not, at this point, Sonia, it's, I don't get too, too high from the wins. I don't get too low from the losses. They just, they hurt or they feel great. And then you have to learn to let it go. You can't let the wins drive your ego. I mean, I remember the first time I hit a big case and I'd gone to the trial lawyers college. This is back in 1998. I thought I had the formula down and I was going to win every case and I was invincible. And then I had some juries teach me that I was fallible very quickly. Uh, you know, and other times, you know, you. I remember when I was just starting, I lost my first three trials and someone was talking smack. Oh, Michael Cowan's no good, you know, because I've got that high score on the bar exam, so there was a lot of hype to me when I came back home. And then, oh, it's, what a joke, he just couldn't make it in a big city. And then all of a sudden I got my fourth trial, solo trial, I got $76,000 verdict on $3,000 in Cairo bills, and all of a sudden I'm a big stud and a hero. You know, and the fact is, I was trying crappy cases. I was lucky to win one. I was expected to lose the others. Most lawyers had no judgment, but you know, that's the, I had to learn, don't get too high on the wins. Don't get too low on the losses. You're a professional. Yeah, it's like an NFL player. Whether you want to lose, you go back to practice on Monday. Right. I think that's a, you know, uh, one of the points that you make is um, a little different than my practice was coming up. There was a very deliberate uh, cost benefit analysis on um, which cases to take, which cases to try, which case, you know what I mean? So, um, you know, it's a different approach to it. And I think that sometimes when you're more willing to just run into the, to the Coliseum and, and do battle, um, it's more visceral than it is 
you know, academic in doing the cost benefit the way that I was kind of come up in my practice. There's pluses and minuses, both. I mean, I tried a lot more cases because of mine. Uh, I probably has helped me reputationally. It also caused me a lot of financial hardship not doing a cost benefit, not learning how to run a business, uh, not learning that, you know, keeping track of your costs and not letting them get out of hand it's just as important as bringing money because it's your profit is what's left after what's left of your fees after expenses and I'd be too focused on bringing in the money and not focused enough on running a good business and not wasting it so that I'd actually have something left uh, so I mean I think that, that there's a need for that balance but I, I do think that if you want to be a trial lawyer you need to go try cases uh, and it's I know people say it's hard to do and I say no it's not Try shitty cases. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not kidding. I mean, if you're a young lawyer, I guarantee you there are people in every town that have cases that have to be tried because there's like a $500 offer and they don't really willing to try them. And if you say, I, I will try that case for you. And yes, you're not going to win all those cases. You're going to lose most of them. But you will get in there. People will see that you're willing to try cases. You will learn to talk to juries. And when you win one or two, you are a hero. Because if you can win a, ca a case with a non-commercial driver, with low property damage, with soft tissue injuries only, if you can win that case, then it's going to be easy when you've got an 18-wheeler and a death or a catastrophic injury. Right. Uh, what, what the cases you and I are doing now are so much easier. Now, to get maximum dollars is hard because you have to. There's a lot of art and a lot of work, and what we're doing is we're trying to you know turn a a case that would normally be worth a million and two million, five million. It's a different it's a different art. Right. But if you and I go take one of these cases and screw up, we're still gonna win and we're still gonna get a verdict that you could like announce in the newspaper, oh I got a five hundred. There's one he's in jail now, but there was one lawyer, uh, he was a real braggart. Uh, he tried a case in Brownsville, Texas. They had offered him a quarter million dollars and the jury gave a hundred and twenty five thousand and he put an ad in the paper saying Blank got a record-setting verdict in a broken leg case in Cameron <laughs> County, Texas. <laughs> I mean, you know, no one knew. No yeah. one, you know, it's just crazy. We are blessed. I think that uh, case selection, after you've been practicing, the, the luxury of being able to choose your cases very selectively um, is a blessing. Yeah, and I would say go try someone else's bad cases. Don't take your own bad cases that where you have to fund them and do all the work and, but. Like I said, there's, if you want to get there and try some cases, you know, you, just, you might have to go, you know, down the barrel, but you can do it. And that's how I started. Uh, and my business model of taking those cases and paying referral fees on them and funding them was not a very good business model. But I don't regret the trials I did for them. I wish, you know, now that I had done it differently, like, hey, I'll go try these for you, but I'm going to go be a lot pickier on what I'm going to pay people to work on and fund and stuff like that. But live and learn. Sonia, we got another great question from a lawyer in Delaware. Never been to Delaware, and I got a question from a lawyer that's so cool, by the way. Thank you for listening and asking. We're making uh, friends all over the country. We are. You know, I was in Ohio speaking this week, and I actually knew people, and people came up to me from this. It was so awesome. So thank you. It makes me feel so good that people actually listen. But the question is, what do you do in discovery when you think the other side's hiding something from you? Well, I have a really interesting experience um, with that, and um, it involved documents that had been allegedly burned down in uh, a fire. And so the defense objected to the production of these documents, and subject to the objection, they said, we don't have them because they burned in the fire. There were some documents produced they were just missing the relevant time frame. So it sounded a little suspicious to me. Um, but the most important thing is running to the courthouse and getting a ruling on the objections. And once the objection is withdrawn, if the court orders the objection withdrawn, um, in this particular case, they withdrew the objection under you know court's intervention. And they still said it burned down. You know, the documents were burned in this fire. Um, it didn't make sense to me, so I filed a second motion to order the defendant corporation's uh, agent to go specifically look for the documents. And fortunately, I was able to make at least a compelling enough argument where this Bear County District Court judge ordered 
the corporate custodian of records to go physically look for the documents and lo and behold they were found but um, it was just because it was just it seemed so odd that the only ones missing were this one time frame and it was compelling enough of an argument for the trial judge to order uh, an extraordinary step of having somebody physically go look and report back to the court about what they found. I always assume that there are documents <laughs> they're not giving me, and I'm rarely disappointed. Uh, and I've had, I, I, I remember like one of my early trucking cases, I was saying, you know, I wanted, for example, we suspected that the driver was lying on the logs. We had found a couple of discrepancies, so we were looking for anything we could with a time or a day. And so one of the things I wanted were receipts for any food purchases. And the ironic thing is I wasn't even making that much money at this point, but the defense lawyer says, in open court, well, Mr. Cowan, not everyone's a rich plaintiff lawyer like you. This, she's a poor truck driver. She just eats sandwiches out of the fridge in her truck. And so, but I remember to keep looking, and when I take her deposition, now when you're on the road, you have to eat. Yeah, well, how do you eat? Well, you know, I stop at the truck stops or I stop at a restaurant. You know, how do you pay for that? Oh, I use a debit card or a credit card. Do you ever eat? No, I don't eat anything out of the fridge in my truck. You know, he just made it up. Uh, and I think that's critical. Um, if you really suspect that the defense is, ho is hiding something from you, take the depositions of people who are going to prove you right. And that's what I really try to do is, you know, when I take, I expect that the lawyers are going to play games. And a lot of times they don't just lie, they just interpret your request in such a way that between the way they're interpreting the wording and then the way they, uh, you know, they say yes for personnel file. We, we don't have a personnel file. We don't have one of those. We have employee files or we have disciplinary files or, oh, you wanted the file with all the things he did wrong. Oh, that's a different file, you know. And so what I just do is I try to get the depositions of the people that would know what documents exist and where they are. And I actually try to establish that, that, that those documents exist before I file my motion to compel. Because what I found is that the, the defense lawyer just goes, say, well, we don't have we them. We don't have them. And because they don't look very hard and they don't ask very hard. And it's uh, a lot easier to get the judge to, to order something compelling to prove that it exists. And even then, we still have, you know, a case I'm doing in Florida right now. And, you know, I got the deposition testimony from the vice president of the company. This document exists and I have it. This document exists and I have it. And we moved to compel and the lawyers still tried to go to court. So we don't have these judges. We've looked for them. Um, Despite I, the testimony. Yeah, I showed that, and of course we won the order. Uh, we won the hearing, but they still, even then they tried and I had to go show page and line, you know, that they did exist. So my biggest thing is find the people who would know, you know, regular corporate employees are, you know, less likely to commit perjury to high documents. Doesn't mean none of them do. Uh, and at that point, you've done what you can unless you get some whistleblower. But, you know, definitely just keep pushing. Uh, and don't be afraid to wait and get the testimony first, then get your order. And if you need to, go redepose the person. Because, Judge, hey, they lied to me. Right. Uh, they didn't. I, mean, I, don't, I don't like using the word lie with a judge because they get upset with that. But, Judge, they told us that they represented this as everything. They evidently they were mistaken. There were additional documents with those. For this reason, I need to redepose this witness. And usually you get it that happens because then what's the other side going to say well we should be able to withhold documents and say they don't exist and then when they do not let them ask our witnesses about them you know, that, that doesn't work very well so here's a question from a lawyer in California I'm constantly contacted by organizations asking me to create a profile on their website and saying it's going to lead to new business does that stuff really work I don't know if it uh, really works, but I can tell you that no one has ever in 20 years called me and said, I saw your listing on Super Lawyers and would like to hire you. <laughs> yeah, I, I think most of them only work for the people selling the listings. Uh, and there are some things like if it's well known enough, like Super Lawyers, I don't know that I get anything from being on Super Lawyers. But I'm afraid if I wasn't on Super Lawyers and my competitor was, then it would be. But oh, I don't pay for a listing on that. Do I do listing? No. I just. Have no, we need to. Well, no, but but my name is on the list. I would hate right. to not be like listed. They just called us last week too. Yeah, and so you know, I'm not always getting. You know, I get emails every day from them, and and they keep coming up with different angles of this AV rating. When you got the judicial AV rating, and the judges think you're good too, you need to put a new plaque. Or one guy, he's a great lawyer. He's a great trucking lawyer. He wrote like a really, very well-known book, treatise on trucking law. And he said, "Well, I'm creating this list 
of lawyers, and I'm, I'm vetting them so it's going to be different than anyone because you have to really be a good trucking lawyer to be on the list, you know, and it's not very expensive, but I'm thinking, but why would a consumer know that that would be the place to look? We'll return to part two of this podcast in just a moment. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide. Are you an attorney with a catastrophic injury or wrongful death case you'd like to discuss with host Michael Cowan? If so, you can reach Michael by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to michael at cowanlaw.com. We now return to the rest of this episode of Trial Lawyer Nation. Well, I think it's um, probably a good idea for lawyers to be suspicious of those solicitations because, of course, there's the super lawyers, which we're all familiar with, and there's Martindale Hubble, which we're all familiar with, but you sometimes get emails and phone calls from the super duper lawyers or the super mega trial lawyers. Or the <laughs> yeah, I just got dis- distinguished justice advocates. I think that's what it is. I, I get there's so many... And look, it's a great, basically you can sell plaques to lawyers all day long. I got one saying I was one of the top 10 divorce lawyers, like a top 10 <laughs> list of divorce lawyers. And I mean, you know, I've never done more than one divorce in a year and I've not done one in years and I pray to God I never do another one. Uh, that's another one. If I come back saying I want to do a divorce somebody, please hit me. <laughs> well, I think some of it too, sometimes I think it's just me because I'll get something in the mail that says I'm one of the best women trial lawyers in the country. And then I, it's like that old Woody Allen movie. I don't know if I want to be a member of a club that would have me for a member. <laughs> yeah. So I guess, you know, I wouldn't spend a lot of money. I mean, I, like I said, I submit in the stuff, make sure my address is right, my phone number is right. But I I typically don't put an ad. I, I may do a super lawyer's ad this re, this year, but it's for a specific reason. Uh, it's not that I expect, I definitely don't expect a consumer to go there. And you know, I really would spend more money trying to get noticed. And if you're in the same book or webpage with 300 other lawyers or a thousand other lawyers, I mean, you're very diluted. And you know, so I. The reality too, though, is with the personal injury practice today, there is so much effort and money being spent by trial lawyers on a search engine optimization that simply paying to put a profile on a website that hosts hundreds of other trial lawyers may not result in what you want. And I'll tell you that if anyone's calling you, if anyone had the secret of how to get a bunch of great PI lawyer cases, I, I would tell you if someone came to me and worked with me and had that secret, I would pay them a boatload of money to make sure that none of them my competitors had access to that. You're going to get a bunch of phone calls. Yeah, and because uh, <laughs> it doesn't exist. I mean, there is, right. you know, the the people, and I know some people that are really good at it, uh, and they won't tell me who they use, and their people aren't out there. I mean, their people are getting very, very handsomely compensated, and they're not out there working for everybody else. And so, it's just so you know, this we're seen as suckers in the ad world. Uh, what like I won't hire a legal marketing company to do marketing for me. We spend a lot of money on marketing, but I won't hire a legal marketing company because what I find is you get half the results for triple the price if it's legal marketing. And if Whereas, something sounds too good to be true, it probably is it too good. Probably to be true. is, and then you have to worry about the ethics of some of these things too because there's these you know a lot of people out there selling leads. You know, a lot of state bar ethics rules do not allow you to pay for a referral to anyone other than you know another lawyer under some rules and maybe to like a, a certified bar referral service but you know these people they put out a website that does not comply with attorney advertising rules uh it doesn't even list a law firm sometimes and then they're selling those leads to different people so you've got the problem that you've got an ad that you benefited from that violates your ethic your, your ethical advertising rules and then you're paying by referral sometimes and so, you know, there's a lot of uh, danger, I think, sometimes in some of these, uh, you know, some of these schemes because uh, you don't know who you're dealing with and they might not be telling the truth. I've heard of another one uh, where they were calling people and then sending the leads direct after crashes or that had been involved in a mass catastrophe. And the lawyers may have had no idea, but I guarantee you if someone gets offended or your case doesn't go right, so how are you going to convince uh, a, a prosecutor or a grievance panel that you didn't tell someone to call that client and that you were an innocent victim? I mean, you know, 
It's Maybe really true. hard when you're a lawyer to argue that you didn't know the law. Yeah, or that you didn't know what the people you're paying were doing, even though it happens. They they totally pick on. There are people that do do cold calls, and they uh, don't necessarily tell the lawyers that's how they're getting their cases. And so you got you got to be careful about who you work with. Uh, I recommend finding a marketing company that when you can talk to somebody face to face, know who they are, that, that has to market for other types of businesses, not just lawyers. Because one, if they're marketing lawyers, marketing to your, they're working for your competitors already, and their efforts would be diluted. But two, it means that they have to survive. You know, they have to produce results. And I'd want to find people that have had the same clients for a long period of time. I'd want to see if they have any clients who would vouch for them that you could talk to. Uh, because you know, I want to see someone who's who's made money for their clients over a period of time. There's another question. I don't know how well we're going to be able to answer this one. What kind of intake or lead tracking systems do we use, or how do we track leads? And this is someone who uses a soft, Minnesota uh, listener that uses a software system for that. Uh, you know, our firm is very different than most firms. Uh, we do almost all attorney referral, uh, and so we actually track leads on a spreadsheet. <laughs> Uh, and then once it gets to a point where we might take the case, we put it our our uh, needles case management system. But because we're not getting like people filling a contact form on our website, or a lot of people just calling us directly, uh, we don't have the issues that other friends of ours have that have that uh, that kind of practice. I don't know if you used anything like that before, Sonia. No, I mean we used uh, Time Matters, which was similar to Needles, which is just a static um, uh, uh, database. Now we do use, you know, Infusionsoft for other things, and, and Infusionsoft can do some great sequencing where you can have it automatically, you know, follow up with a lead, send emails on your behalf, and then you know, tell tell Infusionsoft this person says they don't want to talk to us anymore, or this person now hired us, you know put them in a different sequence or this person asks for information so they can go from the we want to send you information phase to the hey did you read this do you want to talk to us phase um, so I like that and I'm, I'm sure a lot of the other stuff works just fine but I don't have enough experience with anything else because our leads are totally different and it's purposeful because I want to have a very focused practice and the only way I know how to do that is to do attorney referral we got another question uh, from a lawyer in Florida and it's how do you choose who to be Facebook or also your social media friends or connections with, both in terms of should you do that with clients, should you do that with opposing counsel or, or judges? Uh, Sonia, what do you think about that? Well, I'm, I think that uh, lawyers should be judicious, no pun intended, um, with you know their communications online, uh, certainly with judges. We are aware of cases in different parts of the country where uh, you've opened yourself up to a motion to strike the judge because the judge and the lawyer are Facebook friends. But those have mostly failed, though. They have failed. Um, it's, it's a distraction from your litigation. It's a distraction from your game plan if you're having to fight those battles. I think that that's just going to fizzle out nationwide because Facebook is just, you know, uh, so broad of a platform that everybody's basically Facebook friends. Uh, I don't have a Facebook page. I know you do. And I'm impressed that you uh, are Facebook friends with clients. So what are your thoughts on where you draw the line on your communications with clients on yes. Facebook? Yes. Now, I am only Facebook friends with certain clients. <laughs> uh, and part of it, they're usually bigger cases. Uh, and frankly, it's usually because I want to see what the heck they're putting on Facebook and making sure they're not messing up their case. You know, my Facebook feed, and I'm friends with judges, I'm friends with opposing counsel, uh, but a couple things. One, I get cases from Facebook, and there are probably people that would contact me anyway, but they don't remember my email address, or they, they just send me a Facebook message. They, they, they see that I went and ran that day, or that I was on a trip with my family or some of that, so they remember me because they see my Facebook update. Uh, and then... I, I've got some seven-figure cases before because I checked my Facebook messages and there was a lawyer saying, hey, this case come in, you mind calling me? Uh, so I'm, I'm glad I have it. In fact, even when I'm on vacation, I'm going to have someone here checking my Facebook profile. You're also, though, very, very disciplined on social media um, when it comes to remaining politically neutral. Yes, ma'am. And so I think that 
something that you've always stressed is you never know who's looking at your social media platform and prospective jurors or jurors are looking at it and so you don't want to offend anybody you've always been really good at, at, about staying neutral yeah I'm 99% of the time I've had one or two political comments a year but I try not to you, you're not I know people love to politically rant on social media you're not going to change anyone's mind you're not going to convert anybody and as good as it may feel to preach the choir it's going to hurt you with a juror and because we are a, a two-tribe society right now, and there is a presumption from a lot of people that the other tribe are evil, and so if you have a, you know, a big liberal Democrat on your jury panel and you're putting, you know, "Make America Great Again" and the red hat on your Facebook page, that juror is not going to listen to anything you say. And the same thing is if you have, you know, a, a hardcore Trump supporter and you know you have a Hillary or you know a Bernie Sanders thing on your thing and you're, you're giving quotes and you're going on about how horrible Trump is and how dumb or how evil he is in your opinion then that juror is not listen to anything you say I see so many lawyers who look at social media as a uh, emotional outlet at the end of a stressful day and it uh, wasn't until we became partners that I realized um, how much willpower it takes to be restrained the way that you are. I have my therapist for that. I have you and Mallory to talk to. <laughs> I have a wife. I have friends. I have lots of people I can rant about. Uh, I have actually, though, made a, a conscious decision that I stick with most of the time to no longer be emotionally involved in politics. It doesn't mean I don't give money to people, I think are the right candidates and I don't go contribute to our trial lawyer packs because I do. Uh, it doesn't mean I don't vote because I do, but I cannot sitting here today control how the currently elected people are going to vote or what they say or what they're going to do. And I have a finite amount of energy every morning when I get up. And I can spend that energy on moving my cases forward, running my business better and being a good husband and father and maybe even having fun, or I can spend all that energy on worrying about politics and getting upset over things that my emotional energy is going to have no effect over. Because regardless of how I feel about this president, I can be as angry as I want about him, or I could be singing his praises. He's not gonna, he's not gonna know, and he's not gonna care. Do you use social media at all to size up your opponents, to size up judges, to size up witnesses? Judges know Opponents, uh, maybe the weekend before trial, are they working, are they playing, are they how serious are they trying the case? Uh, I do try to look up witnesses and stuff and, and see what they have, what kind of thoughts that they have. Because a lot of people, like I said, really do over-disclose on social media. And again, if you're in another business, that's fine. I mean, it doesn't hurt. And, you know, if I was, you know, making widgets, nobody would care what my opinions were but I am in the business of trying to persuade you know jurors that my client deserves justice and anything I do to alienate a juror is doing my client and ultimately myself because I work on a contingency fee a great disservice so I and same for like not all believe it or not not all plaintiffs lawyers are liberal Democrats we have referring lawyers who are very very right-wing Republicans. We have referring lawyers who are incredibly hard left. We have referring lawyers who don't care. Uh, I don't want to lose any of them over political opinion, and you will, because it's got the point that if you think different, you're an idiot, and you are maybe even a bad person, and they don't want to do business with you. I think that's a great point, and I'm just so glad I never uh, had a Facebook account. <laughs> yeah, because you, you may not have been as disciplined. Is that what you're trying to say? Yes. And And the other thing I've really learned, and, and I think part of it is, you know, most of my, most but not all of my trial friends are on the left. A lot of my non-lawyer friends and a lot of my, uh, ex my in-laws and some family members, more my, my wife's family, are very much on the right. And learning that you have wonderful people on both sides of the aisle that I may vehemently disagree with your opinion I can still not think you're a bad person and I can learn to listen to your opinion because your opinion doesn't affect me 
you know, the fact is, no matter what you or I think about politics, neither one of us are probably going to have, you know, I mean, a today change. Like, our our conversation with each other is probably not going to change what's happening in D.C. or Austin. Uh, there's other things we can do to get involved, and I encourage people to do that. They believe it. But Facebook rants, arguing with people that disagree with us, belittling them does not help at all. And, you know, and I pray for that, you know, if enough of us can learn to listen to respectfully, maybe someday, I think it's going to take a lot of, a, a lot of healing in our country before this can happen, but someday we can maybe find some common ground again. I think that's a great point. Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you're a regular listener, be sure to visit our website, www.triallawyernation.com, to opt into our mailing list and stay updated on our new episodes. And if you have a Facebook account, send us a request to join our private group called Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle. This exclusive group will allow you to hear about our podcast before the air, interact with the show, and get a sneak peek at some of the behind the scenes moments. If you're not on Facebook, you can always contact us via email at podcast at triallawyernation.com. I love to hear from all of you, so please continue to send us emails. Thanks for tuning in, and I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Trial Lawyer Nation is proud to partner with Trial Guides, leader in continuing education for civil plaintiff and criminal defense trial lawyers, with books, DVDs, CLEs, live webinars, and more. Visit trialguides.com and use code TLN19 at checkout to receive our exclusive podcast discount on any Trial Guides products. That's TLN for Trial Lawyer Nation and the number 19. Discount expires August 31st, 2019. We look forward to talking with you again soon as we continue to explore powerful insights from our amazing host and remarkable guests here on Trial Lawyer Nation. Until then, please be sure to subscribe and review this podcast on iTunes or your favorite listening app so we can continue to reach more listeners. Visit us at www.triallawyernation.com to send us a message, listen to previous podcasts, or learn more about Michael Cowan and our guests. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our hosts, guests, or contributors and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.